is my request You don't have to play it But I hope you'll do your best I've been listening to your show on the radio And you seem like a friend to me Howdy hi, Victoria Stand the man Hello Oh, don't get up, it's only me Hello, welcome to a brand new year. I'm Liz. I'm Pete. 1420-3XY. How are you? It's nine after six with Lee Simon. It's 18 to six. 3DB with Keith McGowan. More grand old favourites to play for you a little later on. 3DB, the breeze 693. Good morning and welcome to our brand new radio station. Good afternoon, Melbourne. It's seven minutes past three. This is Greg Evans at 1420-3XY. Well, hi and welcome once again to Pilots of the Airwaves. It is our 40 minutes or so where we get to talk to the people behind the voices who are friends to a whole generation. And today's guest started his career in the back blocks of Queensland, then worked his way through 14 radio stations in three capital cities down the east coast of Australia, steering our listening habits along the way. Yeah, but he's never heard that before. We are, of course, talking about Pete Rudder. Hey, Pete Rudder, welcome to Pilots, and thanks for joining us. Mate, just absolute pleasure. Thanks for taking an interest. No, thank you for your time. Let's rewind it right back, Pete. You're a proud Queenslander. So what was life like growing up in the Sunshine State, and where was your radio dial tuned during those teenage years? Well, what was it like growing up, first of all? Well, you know, we were so blessed living in Brisbane. It was a very laid-back, easy town, very parochial. The highest building in, in Brisbane was the City Hall which, uh, you know, you could jump out of and survive the fall. And, um, you know, we, we were roam free. We had our bikes and we were played and we didn't come home till the lights went out. You know, it was just incredible. Beautiful way to grow up. But, um, yeah, the, the stations that I grew up with were uh, 4BC, 4BH, and I think 4BK were about three stations you could pick from that would play music. And that was about it. And, of course, 4BC were the Beatles station, so I was welded to uh, 4BC right from the get-go, as you could imagine, because the Beatles ruled our lives back in those days. But um, that's it, you know, just just a, a wonderful growing-up environment. We were so spoiled. We were so lucky. So, you know, so fancy-free. Now, like a number of our previous guests, you moved from advertising into radio. Was it just a matter of moving from one creative occupation to another – or did you always have your sights set on a career in radio? Well, you know, my uh, my dad said to me uh, very early on in the piece, because I always voiced a, a, a desire to get into radio, and he said, no, 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 don't, don't even bother with radio. You know, they're all dropouts and losers. <laughs> and and, and I, I thought, no, 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 I want to do radio. But, um, but it took a long time to get there. It took about five years because I went to advertising straight after school and did what he wanted. 
But um, but meeting a lot of people in radio through that five years, I decided that's what I wanted to do. So the first stop was Mount Isa and 4LM. Tell us a little about the inland mining town and what you learned professionally in your time there. Well, when you get to Mount Isa, you've got to do everything. You have to, uh, to go and sell the copy. You've got to do all the production. You've got to uh, voice it, obviously, and then uh, get on the air and, uh, and play the ad. And then... You know, back in those days, you you didn't have all the, all the luxuries of technology that you have now on the computers. You know, you had to queue the records up, and they were very short songs. In fact, I did a did a program called Ranch Club on Saturday night, which was six hours of playing country songs, which are about one minute fifty in length. And with that, you know, I had to um, furiously queue up all these songs and um, and and try and pronounce all these weird names that I was playing. And, and by the end of it, you're just a cot case. So, Pete, tell me, were you accepted by that Mount Isa community? Uh, well, I don't know about that, but, um, but <laughs> did I accept them was another, another question. <laughs> it was probably the worst three months of my life, and I just couldn't wait to get out. In fact, I, I rang up uh, 4IP, the 4IP network, which owned the station, 4LM, and I just said, look, if you don't get me out of here, I'm out of here because I just don't want to be here anymore. It was, uh, it was horrendous. Well, they obviously heard your cries of desperation and it didn't take long to get that all-important first gig at 4IP. Well, we know how you sort of ended up there, but uh, what the have you doing? Well, obviously mid-dawns. That was the, uh, the, the first shift that you, you've got to do. You've got to, in fact, they, they said to me, look, Pete, if you don't stay longer, you're going to miss out on all of the rudiments of, of learning about radio if you don't stay longer in the country. And I said, well, that's okay. I'll learn them in the city. Get me back here, which they did. They had enough belief in me to, uh, to bring me back early, and I didn't let them down. So what influence, if any, was there from being aligned with the big dogs down south in 3XY and 2SM? Oh, it was a massive leap forward. You know, it was just incredible leaving leaving Brisbane after uh, four or five years of um, of learning the craft and being, you know, a fairly mediocre talent. I must admit, in the first um, first couple of years of my career, and nothing really it, nothing really made sense at first because when, when you first start in radio, you're you're everybody else but you. I mean, you, you're taking all the people that you love. You know, I had Ward Pally Austin, John Laws, uh, Wayne Roberts. Um, yeah, all these all these different influences in my head. So you're a little bit of all those people stitched together in a, in a personality, and none of it sounds realistic. So the person you were back then is very different to the person you you, you eventually evolve into and feel comfortable with and find your own personality. But uh, certainly getting into Melbourne was, was a big learning curve after Brisbane. Now, just revisiting those early days, you did do the rounds of the stations in Brizzy during the 70s with stints at 4BK, 4KQ, 4BC and 4BH. Any reason for the number of changes in a relatively short space of time? Well, being a very overconfident person, as I was back then, because I, I really sort of felt that um, that this was all too easy, and, you know, I, I think I was a bit overconfident and I didn't really respect properly the, the authorities. So I was a bit of a hothead. You know, I wanted to do things my way, even though I probably didn't have the talent to back it up at that stage. So, you know, I eventually found myself out of jobs, um, getting on the wrong side of people, being perhaps a bit hot-headed, arrogant. And, um, and deservedly, I was uh, moved on. So having such strong ties in Queensland, how did you end up down south? Well, 
Well, it was all by accident because um, a whole lot of people came up to Brisbane for a, a bit of a convention, and there was Rod Muir, Cherie Romaro, Paul Thompson, some of the greats of radio, and they're all there, they're all assembled. And um, at that meeting, I, and Holger Brockman, and I was able to uh, to be able to network a little bit, and then uh, I sort of sussed out, you know, were there opportunities in the south? And the one that bit first was Cherie Romaro, and she said, "Well, if you come to Perth, she was PD over there." He said, um, you know, I, I can get you something over in uh, in Perth. And I thought, well, that's great. You know, I might do that. So what I did, I took a sabbatical. I went around the world. I, I, I earned enough money to be able to get over to, uh, you know, I went right through India, Nepal, right through Europe, Asia, did it all, pack on the back for a year just to sort of get the hippie out of me. And uh, that was an incredible experience. And when I came back, you know, I got, I was, my first job back was at 4BK. I was very lost. I was very um, caught between two worlds, the world of the counterculture and the world of commercialism. But then I thought to myself, well, you know, let's just get back into it. Let's try and be a, a disc jockey again, see how it pans out. And I did. You know, I was able to find my wings again. I was able to ease myself back into that role of being a broadcaster. I think a better one at that point because I wasn't so cocksure of myself. I was a little bit more circumspect. And I was able to embrace and respect other people. I think that's what I learned when I traveled. It was to respect others, not just think that, you know, it's your world and you own everything and dominate. You know, I, I, I was a much um, more mature person. And But then, you know, I, I realized that the only way to really, you know, flex my talent was to, to move out of Brizzy because I'd done all I could do in Brizzy. Okay, let's look at Melbourne and some of the stations you work for down there. Was DB or, or DB Music your first port of call? No, 3XY was because I had a mate. See, back before I was a radio broadcaster, I was uh, actually uh, worked in advertising, but also as a, as a singer in clubs and pubs as a cabaret performer. And I did some uh, records with RCA. I was seen on a Talent Quest, a TV show, and I did pretty well. And uh, I was given a record contract. I did four tracks. And I got to meet a lot of people through there. And one of them was a guy called Jeff Joseph, who was a bit of a mentor. And I did a tour with the Mixtures up through Queensland and got to know Jeff and the Mixtures and Ronnie Burns and all these different people. And uh, that was a great experience. And then uh, when I came to uh, actually just going back to Cherie on the way to Perth, the car broke down. So I never got to Perth. But Jeff called me and said, mate, get down here to Melbourne and I'll get you at uh, I'll get you a gig at three XY. You can do mid dawns there. So he talked to David Jones, who was then the PD, and um, I I secured a, a mid dawn role at three XY. Now, no doubt, it was a time when XY was really pumping, and you would have been working with some great talent down there. It, it was the rock. It was it was at its peak. You know, you had the guy, all these guys like Lee Simons, Greg Evans was on the air, Jack Daniels, great guy. Uh, he became a mate. And, uh, you know, it was just great being around there. You know, we had people like um, Peter Allen. Peter Allen came into the studio. You know, he was, he was a lovely man, absolutely brilliant man. But, you know, people like that, it was, it was just such a great, great scene. And John O'Donnell, he was, he was there as well. And these voices were, uh, were just synonymous, but they were different. They were very different to me. You know, I was a sort of, hey, you going, Pete Rudder, you know, 3XY. And they were very, 3XY, final miles, coming up on the radio, Peter Harrison. 
what a guy. Peter Harrison was fantastic. And Joe Miller, these guys were so nice to me when I first got there. And uh, we sort of bonded a bit with these guys. But um, Lee Simon, he was out there. You know, he was different. And uh, Greg Evans, of course, he was he was on his in his own little world because he was a superstar. He owned Drive. I mean, they were they were a fantastic station, 3XY. So then it was down to 3DB, and Paul Thompson was your PD at the time, and the station was having a real crack at taking on 3XY, especially after 3AK pulled out of the race and went to beautiful music. Good memories of your time in the dungeons at Flinders Lane? Mate, absolutely amazing. It was probably one of the best times of my radio career because Paul Thompson, he had a real belief in, in me and my skills, and he was the guy who... I don't know. He just bonded well with with all the announcers. He wasn't bigger than the announcers. He was not dictatorial. He was kind. He was gentle. He was very soft. And yet, you know, he had a way of being able to get his message across. And you didn't didn't muck with him. You know, he was just a guy who you totally respected. And he galvanised a very good team there, including Rick Melvin, who was uh, you know he had a bit of a reputation as being a bit of a hothead. Rick, you know, you're a bit of untouchable. I later worked with Rick. In fact, I hired him when I was PD at 3UZ. But uh, no, Paul was was very respectful and he really believed in my talent and helped me to find who Pete Rudder was. And that's why I really appreciate him. And he is one of my, my truest mentors in radio. Okay, so having worked both at 3XY and 3DB, what were the main points of difference between the two stations, given that they were both basically aiming for the same target audience? Well... 3XY was so structured. It had a, a really tight, more music structure where, you know, you didn't deviate from the format at all, where DB was sort of more, I think Paul wanted to cultivate a bit more individualism from the announcers. So there was a bit more room to move. There was a bit more, there was a bit of leeway there. The announcers were a little bit more uh, genuine, if you like. And there were some very good people there. Uh, Billy, Billy uh, Pennell was there and Stan the Man, Stan the Man from three. He was there for a little while in music. He was a lovely guy. He, he, he was at the tail end of his career by then, but uh, a beautiful man. It was so nice to to have, you know, like I used to listen to him on my little little radio in Brisbane, you know, and there, there I am working with this guy. <laughs> Just incredible. <laughs> and uh, Dennis Scanlon who is a, a wonderful, wonderful guy, became a great friend. He and Colette, oh, I just love that guy. He uh, he was so good to me, and he he really took me under his wing as well. So I had a lot of people who I – that was starting to make me feel like Melbourne was my home, and I really appreciate that. So that next move was a couple of notches up the dial to 3KZ, where you in fact had two stints, one in the late 70s and again in the 80s. Was a station of fluctuating fortunes during those times – what attracted you there in the first place and what drew you back a second time? Okay, well, Paul Thompson was then, he went across to KZ and I think uh, at that point he took me across with him. So I didn't uh, I didn't, didn't hesitate at all. I went straight away, yep, you, you little beauty. And uh, because I knew that Paul was, was, a, was a supporter. So I felt very comfortable there. And um, yeah, I, uh, I, I learned a lot. I became very confident in my role. I became... I started to be Pete Rudder at last. I found who I was and I really enjoyed it. I felt very secure because I didn't feel that Paul was ever looking over my shoulder or judging me or wanting more than I could give. And he uh, he always supported everything that I did and was was extremely supportive. So that was that was a very good era, very good era. And of course, then he went to start up SAFM 
And then it all sort of fell apart after that for me, and uh, that's where I, I moved. Again, working with some great talent, Peter Ackfield, Peter O'Callaghan, Joe Miller, and, of course, the very talented and highly successful Moya O'Shea. Yes, that's right. No, there were a lot of great people there, and Peter Byrne, he was there as well, and uh, he became a great friend, Peter Byrne, and, and he and Rondo were wonderful friends. And, of course, Rondo ended up you know, becoming an absolute superstar in the States, writing books and, and becoming a... Um, an American icon. <laughs> she, she sort of taught the Americans how to do it. And don't we just love it when that happens? Now, you touched on it before, but another station in Melbourne that experienced a fairly significant identity crisis during your time was 3UZ, which I would think was in its UZ music phase when you took over as PD. No doubt a daunting task as the FM music stations were starting to flex their muscles at that stage. Well, they were transitioning, you know, from sport and uh, and talk to a fairly sort of I, I don't know, it was all things to all people format, um, to strictly a music format. And Peter Rinaldi, who was the uh, sales manager at KZ, was poached by the family to go over and uh, and run the station. And then Peter said to me, would you like to come and do a shift on UZ? And I said, well, I'm not going to leave the station just to go and do do music, be a presenter. I said, um, he said, well, do you want to be PD? And I said, yeah, let's do it. So I went across there as PD and that was an incredible I – I mean, I can almost write a book alone about that episode in my life at UZ, working with some incredible people and inheriting a lot of very, very talented people and working closely beside them, directing them. And uh, that, that was such a thrill. Now, you mentioned his name before, but John O'Donnell is one of the real doyens of Australian radio. What can you tell us about John? Mate, I, I have nothing but the highest regard and respect for that man, what, what he did. and. The kindness that he showed, direction he showed me. I, I, I worked with him. He was my PD at uh, 3DB, or working. He was un, with Paul. Worked, worked with Paul, who I think he was assistant to Paul. And I remember him him sending me to to interview Billy Joel at the airport when he came in. When he flew in, this was I think the second time that Billy Joel came in. And I was at my arrogant best. Billy Joel arrives. We're ushered into the room. We have about two or three questions to ask because they had all these minders at this stage. When I first interviewed him in Brisbane, he was terrific. But the second one, he was a pig. <laughs> anyway, uh, sorry, Billy, <laughs> all is forgiven. But uh, you know, I remember saying to him, I said, you know, well, why is such a bad mood? You know, can't we just have an interview here? And he said, what are you talking about? You know, and I said, mate, just calm down. We we get this. We'll do this interview. Anyway, the minder came and just dragged me straight away. <laughs> straight out of the room so i didn't even have a chance to ask him a question i went back to jod and i said mate he wouldn't talk to me jay said don't worry mate it's all right don't worry we'll we'll get around it he was so good (laughs) funny days mate Now, no doubt one of your career highlights was being chosen to be part of the initial two triple M dream team put together by the legendary Cherie Romaro, in fact, anchoring the all-important breakfast program. Tell us about the experience of breaking new ground with a new team and a unique sound. Well, yeah, it was a bit anticlimactical, to be honest, because Cherie being a perfectionist, it was a bit difficult. But I understand what she was doing. And I mean, this woman is, is just one of the most accomplished brilliant programmers ever to come out of this country. And uh, again, you know, I have now nothing but respect for her and what she's achieved in, in her career. She's just amazing. But for Pete Rudder in 1980, when I arrived up there, I just 
found it very difficult. And I was finding myself wanting to, you know, to, to move on, but I didn't quite have the courage to do it. So, um, but in the end, you know, I think Cherie realized it and she said, look, mate, you know, I think you're probably better to go. Um, it's not working as well as we thought. And then I agreed with her. And so I left and then Ronnie Sparks picked me up straight away to go to, to UW. And again, you know, off went another amazing chapter in my career. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you have been quoted as saying that your time at 2UW was possibly your best time in radio. Why was it so special? Well, I think because it was successful for me. I'd finally found who I was. You know, I was finally in a, still working in a very, very tight format, which Sparksy had. I mean, Sparksy ran the, the Todd Wallace format perfectly. He was an absolute genius. No doubt about that. I tell you, that guy is... I, I, I know I, I, I keep patting people on the back, but this this guy was was another absolute genius. And you expect to find these people in Cap City Radio. I mean, they wouldn't survive if they weren't good. But he he implemented the Todd Wallace format to probably better than even Wallace thought it could be. He, his, his delivery or, or writing of the liners was perfect. His structure of the hour was absolutely perfect. And his vision for poaching people who could implement that format was perfect as well. He had every single communicator who was hired to do that format was perfect for their role, that they could take what he gave them and make it sound like they'd made it up on, along the way. That's how good the whole thing was. It was, it was, a, it was one of the best formats I've ever worked in, probably the best. You were again working with another fantastic team with Rick Melbourne, Ronnie Sparks, Trevor Sinclair, etc. Lots of egos in the one studio block there. How'd you guys all get along? Well, you know, we we did have our moments. You know, Trev and I had a bit of a bust up a little while there, but we got uh, we got it all together. And because uh, you know, Trev's a bit um, he he can he can give back as good as he he, he gives. <laughs> and same here, Rick Melbourne. Well, Rick was fine by then. You know, Rick was different. Different. He was a Rick, different Rick Melbourne to the one he was in Melbourne. He was just. Very hard to get to, very uh, very difficult to to get to know. But in Melbourne, but when he got by the time he got to Sydney, he was fantastic. He was just a, a lovely guy. Okay, now one of the more bizarre, but no doubt for you, enjoyable promotions on the station was to race around the world with Rick. Tell us how that came about and what did it entail? Well, well we had to fly commercial airlines, and uh, he went one way and I went the other. And we we ended up uh, linking up in 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 London, and we actually stayed one night together in the same room in London. <laughs> so it was pretty wild. So so then we uh, we took off, and we but but look honestly, it was just an absolute nightmare. It was four days on the road, almost with with such little sleep, and there were a lot of problems too with flights because it was winter in in London, and and Gatwick was the only airport that was open, and there was snowbound airports other places, and. You know, it, I mean, I saw the world in four days, but um, I didn't have much sleep, so I was I was absolutely ropeable by the time I got back. So it wasn't the most enjoyable enjoyable promotion I've ever done, but we got through it, and Rick won. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Now, for all the moving around that you did over a couple of decades, you actually found a home for eleven years back in Brisbane at four BH and an easy format. How would you describe an easy format, and what kept you there for eleven years? Well, an easy format is one where um, the beat doesn't get too uh, too hard, and uh, the guitar riffs aren't quite so um, electric. So, yeah, it was uh, it was just a great 
a great because I'd done easy formats before. I did easy format in in Sydney. In fact, it was really easy in Sydney because when I did two uh, ch for uh, eight years on breakfast, our songs were morphing from uh, you know almost uh, Manavani to uh, you know to the Carpenters, and that was about as heavy as we got. So I was very well blooded with easy music by the time I got to to Brisbane. So what do you think of the current 4BH2UE format? Well, you know, they've got Trev doing breakfast and you couldn't get a better person to uh, to be on Brecky than, than Trev. He's he's a, a real pro and he's very relaxed and, and does it does it well. Their music uh, product is extremely good. Um, I would say that uh, probably the rest of the day after Trev, they're uh, a little bit pedestrian maybe, a bit predictable, a bit um, – there's not much edge, there's not much excitement, there's not much unpredictability. But that's the way they want it, and um, and that's fine. But if I was PDing it, I would certainly have a different approach because I think where there are so few stations now catering for you know us older uh, listeners of music, that you know we really need to uh, to get a point of difference and not just to be bland. You know, we can be bold. We can be. In fact, I put it up on on the green room on uh, Facebook recently that I thought what would be a great night show playing album tracks would be Mike Drayson and Steve Britton together because those guys with their voices and their quirky way of seeing music and people would be fantastic. They put them on for a couple of hours. And then, you know, there are so many others to choose from. You can get Holger back on the air. I mean, imagine Holger Brockman back on the air. He'd be fantastic. He's He's got that edge. You know, the, these are people that, that are still intellects, still relate to the music, still relate to the industry who could perform brilliantly. You know, where are they? Why aren't they on the air? And Ronnie Sparks too. Ronnie Sparks could get back on the air. He's he is a, he's brilliant. Now, that is what we'd call a dream team. I'm sure you agree, Pete. However, we do digress because somewhere in all your career, you also ended up at 2-0-0 in Wollongong. <laughs> well, mate, it was, uh, it was the only gig going at the time. Um, that was after 2-U-W. Um, another demise from TUW. I think I'd be sacked from there more times than I joined. But um, but anyway, <laughs> Wollongong. Yes, it was uh, an incredible experience. I worked in a very very small studio which had soot all caked into the into the uh, the, the soundproofing in this tiny little. It was almost like a shoebox. And um, and I thought, what am I doing here? But but it was a good gig, and I really enjoyed it. And Wollongong was a fantastic market for me because. Now, there's very little competition, and uh, even though 2WL was the, the king station, I could almost do what I wanted, and I really learned to hone my skills in in music and lifestyle, did a lot of lifestyle stuff down there, and that lifestyle stuff got me into a lot of um, nice little little things on the side, you know? <laughs> you know, those little things on the side that you can get in provincial markets. So it uh, certainly worked very, very well in that respect. Okay, Pete, got a couple of questions here that just need some clarification. First of all, many of us have a fear of being caught in a lift, but what's it like being caught in a lift with a celebrity? Well, gee, you've done your homework. That Was was that Gene Pitney? Yes, yes. I remember being, being in the Siebel townhouse and, and, you know, I, I, I was going to the ground floor to go and have dinner. I was actually there doing a thing through UZ at the time. We were looking for talent and I was running around different markets. I went to Adelaide and, and Sydney. And anyway, there I am in the, in the Siebel, in the lift, going downstairs or, or going down to the ground floor. And um, 
in pops Gene Pitney, who I recognised straight away. Anyway, he's jig, jig, jiggling the thing and he couldn't get the, the button to work for his floor. And I'm, and I'm saying to him, and he said, oh, this is terrible. Well, what's going on? And I said, Gene, who needs it? And he just burst out laughing. He said, mate, well done. You know, <laughs> He got it straight away. It was beautiful. Now, Pete, did you often make a habit of approaching ladies in coffee shops in Turak claiming that they had played cards with your mother? <laughs> oh, you're a bad man. Yes, oh, that, that'll, I'll never live that down. I'm there with my, uh, my wife at the time and um, <laughs> we were sitting there. I'm looking across at this woman and I'm thinking, I know that lady. She, she used to play cards with mum. I know that for a fact, you know, and it just got to me, and I couldn't. I said, "Here I am in Melbourne, you know, just arrived. I'm in Turak." And I thought, "Oh, I'll just pop over and, and say hello." And I, said, I walked up and I said, "Hi, how are you? Do you remember me?" I said, "You used to play cards with Mum, didn't you?" And she went, "Oh no, no, I don't think so. I don't think I've ever lived in Brisbane." <laughs> and I said, "I said, well, are you sure you never played cards with my mother?" She said. No, not in Brisbane, no. <laughs> she, said, she, she said, no, my name is Fraser, Tammy Fraser. <laughs> and I just shrunk. Oh, I ducked. I just absolutely went pale. But that's me, you know, I always do that. Embarrassing situation, almost embarrassing, is getting caught with your pants down in Memphis. Hey, listen, Pete, what can you tell us about a song titled He's Our Dear Weatherman? <laughs> well... It was one of the songs that was tossed to me for uh, for recording with RCA. Probably not the best song that uh, they could have thrown me, but still I made the, made the best of it. And, um, in fact, when I went to Sydney to record that from Brisbane in EMI Studios with a 25-piece orchestra and Kerry Bedell was one of the background singers. Thank you very much, Kerry. And on Vibes, I think it was John Sangster, who was a highly acclaimed musician at the time, um, I remember um, doing the song. I had the flu and I had the worst case of flu and I rang them and I said, look, you know, I've got the flu. What do you think? And they said, well, mate, we booked a studio. We got all the people coming, you know, get down here and work your way through it. So when I recorded those four songs, I had the worst case of flu you could imagine. So my back was against the wall from the from the word go doing that doing that uh, recording session. But what a fantastic experience doing it! So do you still belt out the occasional tune these days? I do from time to time. Yep, when the you know karaoke's on or whatever, and um, I can still still cry out the tunes. It's not too bad. Still a little bit of voice left. <laughs> but you know, singing is different to uh, to being on the radio, using different muscles, different uh, parts of your register. So. You know, if you're using radio voice all the time, it's it's working the lower register. When you're singing, you're using it all. You're using the full dimension. So the 83 little muscles that control voice production are getting a full workout when you're a singer, no doubt. Okay, Pete, time for our quick dozen questions. First one being, where were you when you heard that John Lennon had died? Well, I was on the air at Triple M at the time, and the Double Fantasy album had just been released. So you could imagine the shock and the the, the horror of hearing that news. And being at, um, at Triple M and 
being a station who that Cherie really had to, um, I mean, she she was very much involved in stamping it as a as a new wonderful, edgy, different radio station, and and it was you know like FM had just started. I think we were the first brekkie team on the on the air, and um, or, or the first team on the air. And we were just playing John Lennon over and over again. We were playing it all the time. We had a, you know, I think we played it all day, just about double fantasy album, and reflecting on his career. And I mean, Cherie did a wonderful job of of seeing that that dreadful situation through. But it was it was horrendous. You know, it was like like a death in the family. Yes, indeed. Last concert ticket you paid for? Well, back in the seventies, it was. That was a long time ago. But when I when I paid for a, a concert. But I went to see Yes in Yes Songs. They did Yes Songs. And John Anderson and Yes are one of my favourite bands with Steve Howe and Alan White and, you know, Rick Wakeman. And I interviewed Rick Wakeman in Brisbane before the, the band really took off. They came to Brisbane and when Close to the Edge was just released and they were doing a follow-up tour of uh, Australia. And I, I got to interview Rick Wakeman, which was amazing. And he was the most wonderful guy to interview because he was so lively and down to earth. And I think he was a beer drinking champion at one stage. He was in the Guinness Book of Records for being, you know, the, a beer drinking champion. It was incredible. Concert act that you regret never seeing? The Beatles. I had tonsillitis. So to me, it was just, it was, it was almost dying not being able to go and see them because they were my favourite band. You had the pictures on the wall and, they had such a huge influence on my life and my career and just about everything. I mean, Beatles were, when you're 14, 15 years of age, were there was nothing else that mattered but the Beatles. So to miss that concert was terrifying. Okay, Pete, was there a word that you had most trouble pronouncing on air? I think it's the old one, isn't it? That uh, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, 34 letters of absolute murder and hell. <laughs> and you had to say it a couple of times in your life on the radio. <laughs> Anathema or Worcestershire. <laughs> yeah, I must admit I'm not great on anathema myself. Hey, listen, was there ever an incident on air that had you thinking you might get those Don't Come Monday orders? Well, I did get those, actually. Uh, I remember doing an OB in a van in a shopping centre for uh, a radio station in Brisbane back in the early days, and um, it was hot. I mean, we, we were out there in this shopping centre. There was no air. The aircon wasn't working. So I had my shirt off. I was perf- profusely perspiring. And every time I put a 45 on the turntable, that's how old it was. I mean, back in those days, they only had turntables in the, in the OB vans. And every time I put a 45, and it just buckled. So I, I, I couldn't do I couldn't play any music. Anyway, the... Um, the station manager said, mate, sit it out. Just stay there. I want you there because we need the money. We need to do the OB. Don't leave. So I stuck it out for another 20 minutes and I thought, no, this is this is just this is just jockey abuse. <laughs> so I just packed my things. I just rang him and I said, mate, I'm, I'm going. I've got to get out of here. I just can't. It's just impossible. And then uh, that was it. They um, they boned me. Skyhooks or Sherbet? Oh, it's Sherbet. Absolutely Sherbet. Yeah, Skyhooks is a good band. And they were very sort of Melbourne oriented, but uh, but no, but the Sherbs were great because their their music was um, I thought was better produced. Uh, I, I think Braithwaite, absolutely brilliant singer, and their songs too were uh, a little bit more creative, a bit more inventive, and of course they had bigger hits. And Daryl was a, was a great performer, as Shirley was, no doubt. But I don't know, I just think Sherbet had the edge for me. I think I know the answer to this one. 
Rolling Stones or the Beatles? Oh, definitely Beatles. Absolutely. No contest. The Stones did a fantastic job of... Um, well, they, they were the sort of the, the, the antichrist of the Beatles. They, uh, they were the dirty, unwashed, you know, grubs of rock and roll that um, were waiting to, uh, to get a... I don't know, just, just to get us looking in a different direction, and they did it so perfectly. But, you know, the, the really interesting thing with the Stones to me was that they never really wanted to be a, a huge rock and roll band. All they wanted to do was do blues, you know, do blues, and um, and they've sort of reinvented the genre, and they didn't even know what they were going to do at first because they were, they were stumbling until I think it was uh, Andrew Oldham said to them, hey, guys, listen, um, you know, I, I, I don't want you guys to do anything until you've written a song because they were just doing covers at that stage. And, uh, and then they started doing their own stuff and found that they could do it. So it was, was sort of negotiated by accident. Otherwise, they'd still be doing John Lee Hooker, Muddy Waters songs. The most treasured piece of memorabilia from those early radio days. Well, I think I still got it. It's an old 4IP sequined T-shirt, long-sleeved T-shirt that I used to wear on the stage when uh, I was with a 4IP big band and we used to do concerts at the football. And I was actually one of the, I was the singer in, in the 4AP big band for a while. There was Jeff Mullins and myself. So uh, I think I've still got that tucked away, but I don't think I'd fit it now. Although, maybe. <laughs> Squeeze into it. <laughs> yeah, take a big deep breath there, Pete. Hey, listen, biggest news story that broke while you were on air. Well, I was on the air. I'd just come down from Mount Isa in 1972, and um, it was the winter. And I remember all the sirens going you know, while I was on the air and it was a really, I mean, they were just going all night long and that was the whiskey go-go fire. I was on the air when that happened, literally. And that was, that was horrendous, absolutely horrendous. And I knew the manager of the whiskey go-go because when I was a singer in Brisbane doing clubs and pubs, I used to do quite a few gigs for him at the whiskey go-go because it was quite a reputable little uh, cabaret place. Cause back in those days, no poker machines, everyone went out, they wanted to see a show. So you had, you know, if you're a singer or you had a club act, you got in, onto the circuit and that was part of the circuit. And I did it. I did it quite a few times. The moment someone walked into your studio and you were suddenly starstruck. Well, I don't think it's happened too many times because I'm pretty good with all that stuff. You know, I, I realise that they're people just like you and I. But I, I did have a really, like a man crush or a, I don't know, I just, just felt very... Um, taken with John Farnham back in his early, he was Johnny Farnham back in those days. He came into the studio in 1972 and completely shattered all that, that myth because he was so almost awkward, so down to earth, such, such a, like a, like a mate, you know, he was stumbling and falling over himself. He, he's not the John Farnham that he became. Mm. He was very young and very caught up in the world. I think he was a bit, um, a bit in awe of what was going on. Although on stage, the guy came across as a total pro and looked so confident. But when he was being interviewed, he was a different guy. And, and, and all of a sudden, you know, from that feeling of being overwhelmed with, with awe of him being in the studio, I became in control. And I was leading him into things. And I was, I, you know, I don't know, it was, it was just an incredible moment that uh, he was my, because I have a total absolute respect for that guy's ability and his voice and what he's achieved. And, you know, he's just one of the greats, isn't he? Sure is. Uh, best words of advice from a program manager? Well, I think Paul, you know, Paul Thompson, who back in those days, DB in Melbourne, just said, look, Pete, you know, be yourself. He believed in me as a communicator. 
And he said, if you can find who you are, just be that guy. Just be true to yourself. Mm. And that's exactly what I did. And um, and I found who I was. And after that, things just became a lot easier, a lot easier. And I, I just avoided the, um, I don't know, the, 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 that, that feeling of, of pressure to be like other disc jockeys that was always there in the past. And finally, two albums that you'd consider the soundtrack of your teenage years that still might get a run today. Well, Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd, 1973, was really, I suppose, the, the album that changed my life in many ways. And then Seven Sojourn by Moody Blues was also an incredible album because that was the, the Moody Blues, that was their seventh album, Seventh Sojourn. And by then they'd really honed their skills and they had all the production skills. They had um, um, all, all these super talents in the band. I mean, they were just, Justin Haywood, what a great voice. Mike Pinder on his Mellotron and um, Tony Clark, who was the producer, he was like the fifth Moody. He had them, he had produced them perfectly. They're an amazing band. And still today, probably my, one of my favorite bands, if not my favorite band of all time. Hey, Pete, that's been a great trip down memory lane, running up and down the east coast there of Australia. A great career, many highlights. Thanks for sharing them with us today on Pilots of the Airwaves. Pleasure, mate, and uh, thank you for taking an interest in in my life. And uh, it's really lovely to to go back and relive it because at the moment I'm back in full-time work and I don't get much time to look at the old days, but I really appreciate you taking me into that world. It's just fantastic. Appreciate it very much. Pete Rudder on Pilots of the Airwaves. (laughs) 